This morning, however, as we turn to the Word of God, I would like to focus, as Rav Shaul said, on Yeshua and him crucified. And I don't think there's a better topic, as we've seen in our parsha, the great need that we have for one to stand in the gap for us as those who are not inherently of ourselves liable to be keepers of the covenant that God has extended towards us. And as we have remembered in the Seudat Ha'adon, and that we have remembered Yeshua, the one who has given his life for us, we are reminded of the centrality of him. And here we are, a messianic Jewish congregation, both Jews and Gentiles together, and there is one thing that separates us from the other religions of the world, from those who have different ideas, and particularly, and maybe painfully for those of us who are Jewish, from Uh, between us and the rest of the Jewish world. And it's not the practices that we keep, and it's not the traditions, and it's not necessarily the details of our faith. Other than that, we give glory to Yeshua and him crucified, the one who has come and who has made all the difference in our lives and in the lives of millions around the world. Rav Shaul came to this very realization, and we have his famous words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. Messiah did not send me to immerse, but to preach the good news, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Messiah should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Rav Shaul realized the importance of who Yeshua is. He is the one who makes the difference. Because we believe in him, we have been In all of our different worlds, whatever our home communities might be, we have been, in a sense, separated out. Some of us might come from Catholic backgrounds where the church has been supreme, and we have realized it's all really about Yeshua, who is the way to God, and there is no other mediator between God and man other than Yeshua, the man. Messiah, Yeshua. Some of us come from other religious backgrounds and may have experienced separation from our families or at least distancing as people looked at at us and said, why are you believing that? Some of you know that uh, my wife, Deborah, had a previous marriage and when she came to faith, her husband at that told her that time told her you've thrown away your mind and many of us have experienced this kind of thing in our lives 
And it is because of Yeshua that we have stepped out on what sometimes seems like a lonely road where our family and friends just don't quite know what to make of us. We no longer are politically acceptable in the world because we have accepted Yeshua's teachings. And yet, he is the one who has made all the difference. And of course, you might know that by the time Rav Shaul wrote about um, his experience with Messiah to the Corinthians, he had already been in the great city of Athens. He had already preached to the Athenians in great and flowing words that came out of the Greek philosophers, speaking to them about the one who is the unknown God. And now he comes to the Corinthians, and he wasn't that successful in Athens. And he wants simply to preach Messiah. Because sometimes the seeker-friendly words, as some people would put them, are not the words that are really going to make a difference. Last week I was here, I talked about the Nestorian Christians in in China in the 7th and 8th century. And one of the lessons that people have learned by looking at this great movement in China is that maybe it didn't persevere because those who were bringing the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah, were so careful to couch their teachings in a way that would be socially acceptable in a different environment and in a different world that they didn't get down to the revolutionary power of the gospel and that they didn't clearly proclaim what it is to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And it's something we never want to lose sight of. What Yeshua has done for us. In verses 23 to 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Rav Shaul speaks about how we preach Messiah crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it is possible to build congregations, and it is possible to build movements that are based on a socially acceptable good news, a playing down of the basics of our faith that are so powerful because they are, and yet are so controversial. And it's possible to have temporary success but it can also be that when persecution arises and when, when the winds of fortune no longer are blowing our way, that with such a good news, we find that it is a good news that does not endure. And that's where we as believers in Messiah Yeshua have a role in the Jewish world and we have a role in the world in general. And that is to, in our lives, and in everything we do, put Yeshua first. I'm reminded of those 
bracelets that people wore in the 1980s. What would Yeshua or Jesus do? WWJD. And it was based on a uh, novel called In His Steps, which at the time was resurrected in a sense to popularity and where the theme of the novel was what a difference can be made in the world if we were to ask ourselves what would Yeshua do and to live according to his wisdom and his righteousness. Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We need to turn our eyes towards him. There's no magic way of doing it. There are no simple steps to making Messiah Lord and putting him at the center of our lives. But each one of us know what we need to do. Each one of us know what it takes to put him at the center of our lives. And this is what Yeshua, or what Rav Shaul, was seeking to preach to the people in Corinth. And this is why he was so, um, so effective in his preaching of this good news as he came to a city that was ridden with sin, that was very secular in the ways of the world at that time, very pagan and given over to the pagan gods a place where you would think the good news of Messiah wouldn't necessarily grab hold. It wasn't a city with big synagogues and a massive Jewish community where he could have a good start, a running start, in preaching the good news of Messiah, the Yeshua. But it was a city where when those whom God was touching in their hearts heard the good news about Messiah, the one who had given his life for them, who was crucified. A city where the good news could make a difference. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Sometimes we need to be brave, And just state, it is Yeshua, Jesus, who has made all the difference in our lives. He is the one whom we adore, and he is the one whom we live for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Rav Shaul expounds a little bit more on this very same theme. And I, brethren... When I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Yeshua HaMashiach and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There is a choice that has to be made. 
we can go forth and we can speak the words to the world around us, to the people we know, that are socially acceptable, that will maybe get them to sit and think a little bit about what we have to say. We can seek to be politically correct in our language. And maybe we don't need to be as um, afraid when we say such words. We don't need to worry about people's disapproval. We don't need to be in fear and trembling as Rav Shaul was. But sometimes we need to speak the truth clearly. I remember once uh, I, in Vancouver Vocational School on Pender Street, I was taking a drafting course in 1980. And I really knew I needed to share the gospel with my fellow students. And one day I sat them down and I started going through the four spiritual laws, or as someone we knew called them the four spiritual flaws because they don't exactly accurately describe the good news of Messiah. But nevertheless, with trembling, I remember sitting there in the cafeteria opening the little book to explain the good news of salvation. And I think that's a little bit of what Rav Shaul is talking about here. We look upon these great apostles, those who went as far as India and Persia and and Europe and North Africa and preached the good news of Messiah. Their stories told in the pages of history and little tidbits coming back to us through the pages of the Brit Hadashah. They went to these places and we think of them boldly going forth and bringing this good news to the people of the cities and towns that they were going to. But we forget that they were just people like us. And like Rav Shaul, there must have been times when their hands would shake with nervousness and fear, when they didn't feel that brave as they brought the good news of Yeshua to those who had never heard it before, to those to whom it would seem foolishness, to those whom it would seem a stumbling block, something ridiculous. How could someone who died on a cross, as a criminal, be our Messiah. To this day, we as a people are still looking for our Messiah. As we are in these days of awe, our Jewish people around the world are are praying that God might look upon our good deeds, upon our prayers, upon our repentance, and in mercy. Be gracious to us and forgive us. And those are all wonderful things that God certainly cares about, our prayers and our repentance. But he tells us to turn to Messiah, Messiah crucified, the one who gave his life for us. And here we are in days when our people are seeking to turn to God And people around the world are daily seeking to find God in their various ways. They are seeking to look and see something of him. 
and they are not turning to the one who is God revealed to us. In the book of Genesis, we have the tremendous picture of God revealed to us in Gan Eden. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, God had planted a garden, and in that garden lived Adam and Chava, or in English, Adam and Eve. And they were to be the parents of all humanity. But they fell, they sinned, they stepped out of God's commandments. And we learn in chapter 3 and verse 8, that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? There was a day when we certainly saw Hashem. Somehow, we were able to see him and to relate to him. We heard his call, his voice. We talk about hearing the voice of the shofar. Call shofar. Uh, last week, we sang the song about the voice of the bride and the voice of the bridegroom. Call sason ve kol chatan ve kol kala. And here, we have the voice of the Lord, the call of the voice, and they heard his voice. They saw him. Looking back now, we realize that this must have been God somehow in human form. This must have been God in Yeshua, even in Gan Eden, before Yeshua was born a man. People call that a theophany. Jewish teaching says that God can never be seen. But here in our own scriptures, we see that God can be seen. God can be recognized. And here he is recognized, no doubt, in my opinion, to in his son, Yeshua, who walked with Adam and Chava in the cool of the day. And they heard his voice. They knew him and they saw him, and they conversed with him. In Shemot, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, we are told to not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not make for yourself any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God says we are not to make any image of him in any way. And he says so in the strongest of terms, warning us, about his nature, about his um, jealousy, how only he is to be worshipped. 
And it is, of course, a jealousy for our own good. But here we have the, the lesson, we are not to seek to make any image of him. It's seen even today in Jewish synagogues. We do not have images. We do not seek to represent God in any way. Medieval art shows Jewish people as people with bird's beaks, the Jewish art, because we don't want to even make an image of man um, that, that might in some way impinge on this commandment. But God has nevertheless revealed himself to us. Exodus or Shemot chapter 33 and verse 20 declares, No one can see God. And yet Adam saw God. He saw him and communed with him. Avraham in Bereshit chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, saw the Lord. We read there that the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted his eyes and looked. There are many questions regarding this text, regarding this story. But there's no getting around the simple, straightforward statement in the very first verse that the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. In other words, in time and in space, in our world, this is not a vision. It's made very clear that Avraham is not, not dreaming. He is by the terebinth trees. And there he sees Hashem. It's an amazing statement. Especially since we are told that no one can see God. Yaakov, Bereshit chapter 32. We see him also in similar circumstances. Bereshit, Genesis chapter 32 and verse 24. God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Yaakov, neither good nor bad. Laban saw God in a dream. But Yaakov had actually seen God in another vision, on the top of a ladder that went from heaven, from earth to heaven, with the angels ascending up and down. God can be seen, but how? Of course, we know as believers in Messiah Yeshua, but the Jewish people and the world does not really know that God can be seen. The nations have their idols, but they cannot see their gods, which are false gods. They have their idols. They worship them. They carry them around. They drop them sometimes, and they fall on the floor. They can't save themselves. But God reigns on high. 
among our people for many years. There, there were attempts to solve this problem. We have in the uh, Talmud and in, in the Midrash the picture of the Memra, who is the Word of God, who is somehow God present and visible among us. We see in um, Genesis chapter 28 and verse 21, we see a verse that became, became the basis of this interpretation of the Memra. Genesis chapter 28 and verse 21. There we read, Yaakov had made a vow saying in the previous verse, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come to back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And there's a targum called Pseudo-Jonathan that is very messianic in, in many of its interpretations. And it says on the basis of this statement that the Lord will be my God, that God will reveal himself, and in that revelation he is designated that the Memra. And that term, the Memra, which is the word, appears in, that tar- in another Targum called Onkelos 179 times, and in the Targum Jonathan that we've mentioned, 320 one times. This memora in Jewish tradition is distinguished from the Shekhinah. It's not simply the, the manifestation of God. It's not the angel of the Lord. It's not another figure that you might have heard of, Metatron, in Jewish tradition, but is somehow the word of God. And Philo great uh, Jewish philosopher from Alexandria in Egypt, spoke of the power of God and the logos of God, the word of God. We have memra, the Hebrew word for word. We have the logos of God, the word of God. And he said that no mortal thing could have been formed on the similitude formed on the similitude of the Supreme Father of the universe, but only after the image of the Second, who is the Word of the Supreme Being. Thus we are made in the image of the Word of God. Our people have never known quite how to handle these scriptures that speak of the appearance of God, that speak of his presence in visible terms. And yet there is an awareness that certainly he has done so. And so the memora has been um, described as a way of, of acknowledging the word of God, the presence of God in our lives. Of course, we know from Yohanan chapter 1 and verse 18 where this all leads. Because Yohanan, using these concepts, that have been floating around among our people, speaks in chapter 1 and verse 18 to affirm that no one has seen God at any time. 
but at the same time says that the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of chesed and emet, chesed ve'emet. Yeshua has revealed Hashem to us. We are not able to ferret out the intricacies of how this is possible. We're not able to philosophically define Messiah, Yeshua. In the fourth century, the believers in the church at that time came up with a creed. We call it the Nicene Creed, and it was later um, adopted as a Chalcedonian Creed. It was further refined. An attempt to define who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Spirit is. But fortunately, although they were very much going on this Greek uh, track of thought where they were trying to define who Hashem is and who the Son is and who the Spirit is, they relied on Hebrew terminology and scriptural language and simply ended up describing what they could see in the scriptures. It's for this reason that their definition has stood. It stood the test of time. It is accepted by believers worldwide, and it's accepted by Messianic congregations worldwide, including Kehilat Tzion as well. That we have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and we don't know exactly how the intricacies of their relationship work. For if we were able to fully define who God is, we would be like God himself, because these things are too great for us. They are too profound for the human mind. But nevertheless, God is revealed in his Son. And the world word did become flesh, and he did dwell among us. We did behold his glory, the glory as of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We are not like the pagans who worship three, who worship many different gods. We affirm there is one God over heaven and earth, and yet we also affirm that all three are present in the scriptures and in our lives, working in our lives even today. That's why we re- recite every week Elohim Asher, that God in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, through whom also he made the worlds, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. And so we have Hashem dwelling with us. We have Yeshua, who is one who is not like us, in that he is one with the Father, and yet is fully one of us, and, it is, and is called the man, Messiah, Yeshua. We are given this tremendous opportunity of worshiping him, as we read in the scriptures, and bowing down to him, as the scriptures say, every tongue shall, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess 
to the glory of God the Father. And we are told that worship of Messiah Yeshua is equivalent and leads to worship of Hashem, God the Father. We have this great privilege of lifting Messiah Yeshua up. To our Jewish people, he is a stumbling block. How could one who has died be our Messiah? As many of our people say today, we can see he is not the Messiah because where is the peace on earth? Where is the shalom in a world where we see genocides happening in nation after nation after nation? Where is the olam haba? Where is the messianic kingdom? We don't see it, our people say. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. And yet, it is our life. It is, it is the um, power of God. And as Rav Shaul says, the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have the great opportunity as Messianic Jews and Gentiles to lift Yeshua up in the world and in our lives in a unique way. Because as believers that he is the Jewish Messiah, we are very connected to the humanity of Yeshua, the man. Not only in the cross, but in his entire life. And sometimes there are those who, with tunnel vision, forget that Yeshua is a man. And we are able to affirm this to the Jewish people and to the world. But we are also able to affirm his absolute divinity, his absolute unity with the Father, the fact that he is one with him, and that there is none like our God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. For us as believers today, as we open the scriptures and as we share the good news with our friends, and as we pray, when we keep Yeshua at the center, of what we do. We are not negating the fact that all glory belongs to the Father. We are, in fact, affirming affirming the glory of God. We have a great Savior. We have one who has made a difference in millions and millions of Jewish lives over the centuries. Today, we think there are over 1% of the Jewish population, probably 2% who are believers in Messiah. That would be about 150 to 300,000 Jewish believers in Messiah around the world today. We know that before the Shoah, before the Holocaust, there were over 200,000 Jewish believers in Messiah in Europe alone. Of course, the majority of Jews were in Europe at that time. But nevertheless, we know that there have been thousands throughout the centuries who have acknowledged him and who have followed him. They chose the foolishness of the cross 
over the massive wisdom of Judaism. And you can go into any Jewish home, especially a religious home, and you will see the books on the wall. In a religious home, uh, you will see tome after tome of Hebrew texts, the wisdom that we have accumulated over the centuries. And there's an awful lot of good in it. Saul Fry, who um, employed me for a few years, or for a few months, rather, in his drapery business, used to tell me that the reason he was successful in his business was because of his knowledge of the Talmud and all the lessons that it had taught him. He was a very um, religious, or from a very religious background. We have all that wisdom, but the wisdom of Messiah supersedes it all. And so the challenge for us is to each as individuals seek to put Yeshua at the center of our lives, to remember who he is, to glorify him, to remember what he has done for us on a regular basis, and in the midst of our lives as Messianic Jews and Gentiles, never to lose sight of that fact, because he is the one who has given his life for us and for all who will put their faith in him. I'd like to conclude with a word of prayer. Avinu Shava Shemaim, we thank you for your son, Messiah Yeshua, who came and who gave his life for us, who lived for us as a Jew from Galilee, who walked among us, and in whom we saw your glory. Father, we pray that during these days of awe as we approach Yom Kippur, as we seek to be right with you in every aspect of our lives. We pray that in the midst of it all, that we might be faithful in keeping your Son at the center of all that you have done for us, in the center of our minds, in the center of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that, it, that these days might not be simply about tradition and fulfilling the, the traditions and the commands of the feasts, but that they might be truly about lifting up our Messiah and our Lord. We pray these things in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.